Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is... To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Righteous Convictions with Jason Flom, the podcast where I speak with people who see the wrong in the world and are driven to make it right. Today, I'm speaking with a woman who, while incarcerated, began campaigning for prisoners' rights. Upon her release, she continued her grassroots organizing, building a movement that successfully targeted police practices and corrupt officials in her home county of Mariposa, Arizona. Dismantling systems and institutions that hold the power may seem like the purview of superheroes, but Lola Sango says it can be done by any of us, and the work starts at home. Sitting at your table at dinner with your spouse or your neighbor or, you know, kids, and especially kids, if we can start to develop these notions that this change is necessary on that small scale, it will begin to grow to the larger scale. So I always say, build your community and strengthen it and that then you get taken more seriously, right, by those systems of power. Right now on Righteous Convictions, Lola Sango. Welcome back to Righteous Convictions with Jason Flom. My guest today has an amazing resume, and I think this one is a first for us. Lola, you were a catering manager, you earned a degree in fire science, and you were the co-founder of Humanities Behind the Walls, which you started while incarcerated. And you're currently the executive director of Mass Liberation Arizona, which is an organization I'm very excited to learn more about myself. So welcome, Lola Sango, to Righteous Convictions. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to have you here to tell us about your extraordinary journey. So let's just jump right into it. What is your origin story? I mean, like, how in the world did you become you? Oh, wow. <laughs> well, that's um, that's an interesting question. So I guess 
you did find out that I was a catering manager. Actually, I was a wedding planner before I went to prison. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> I know. Isn't it funny? And and then I, you know, I, I, I started out, I wanted to be a firefighter when I was young. And, and then I decided that I was going to get into catering sales. I decided to become a wedding planner. It was something I really was passionate about. I really thought that like that's where I was going to land in my career as, um, you know, I was a younger person. And then suddenly uh, my life changed. And I ended up um, finding myself uh, prosecuted by the Maricopa County Attorney's Office in 2002. And in 2003, um, I was convicted of an offense and sent to prison and where I was set to be there for 12 years. And in Arizona, because it's a truth and sentencing state, I ended up spending 10.2, never forget the point two, those count, years in prison. And it was during the time I was in prison. It didn't take long. I was there for about five minutes before I recognized there was overt racism, ageism, um, that there was this whole dynamic of punitive, like there's a, such this punishing environment. And I couldn't figure out really what there was to do about that. I hadn't really prisons weren't on my radar when I was younger. I had no idea like about crime and punishment. I didn't vote um, toward like anything that had to do with prisons. And so I, I was really caught off guard by just how bad it was. And the conditions were really awful. And I started just to listen to people's stories. And I started to find out it just wasn't what we thought it was. And during the time that I was there, I really couldn't sit still and sort of witness this behavior. And it also was happening, you know, towards me too, this overt racism and this, this like super violent system um, that really dehumanized you on a daily basis. And I started to organize while I was inside. And I didn't even realize I was doing it. I really started to recognize that it was organizing probably toward the latter part of my sentence when I was introduced to abolition as like a theory of change. And I was like, holy wow, I've been in here organizing this whole time. And, um, and yeah, so once I got an idea of what abolition was, I actually was, was sitting in a dorm room um, with like 300 women and there was a mail call. It was so strange because like everybody suddenly had legal mail. It was like, like 300 people. And they all had legal mail. And in, in prison in Arizona, when you get legal mail, you have to like sign for it. Guards aren't able to open it. It's a whole to do. And suddenly, like everybody in the dorm had it. It was a huge disruption. It was like a four-hour mail call. And I was like, wow, I guess I'm going to get legal mail. What's this about? And I walked up to go get the legal mail. And it was a newsletter. It was called The Abolitionist. And it came from um, an organization out of the Bay Area called Critical Resistance. And I, I opened it up. And I saw myself in there. I saw prison art. I saw stories of black liberation. I saw how people are dehumanized by the system. And it was run by and written by people who were formerly incarcerated. And I just sat down on the floor and like drank it all. And I was so thirsty for it. And I also recognized it wasn't lost on me, this huge disruption that they caused within the prison to get, get it to me. And I was like, wow, okay, this is what, this is it. So that ever since then, I've been an abolitionist and the rest is history. So that was your like eureka moment. And it's interesting, too, because Arizona is, you know, I think when people think of Arizona, they think of Arpaio, they think of his disgusting mm -hmm. treatment of, uh, of well, immigrants in particular and Latinos, but everybody who was locked up in his, mm -hmm. quote unquote, his jails, as he would call them. Right. And, you know, it's also a place where private prisons have existed uh, for mm -hmm. quite some time, um, you know, I think almost most people get that private prisons uh, need to be abolished, but mm -hmm. your work is in abolition writ large. And so there you have this incredible moment, right? Where you're, you know, 
it's almost like you got hit by the lightning bolt. What happens next? Well, you know, I started to realize that there could be a framework to the organizing I had done. I've been largely reactionary, just sort of dealing with the day-to-day um, conditions of confinement. Like, was there inhumane, like, the, the food, were they, were they serving horrible food? Were people not getting medical treatment? I was doing, like, sort of one-at-a-time advocacy for folks inside, and I actually had joined what was called the community forum where I would go sort of like represent the entire yard at like these conversations with not only the warden of the prison, but sometimes the regional operations directors and high level administrators. And I started to recognize that there's a pattern here and it's actually um, the way power moves within um, that institution. It's not unlike how it moves in corporate America, which is also another light bulb moment, right? We talk about private prisons and their interests are no different. And you can actually sit at the table and negotiate things in ways that, um, that I was just really surprised by. And I just, I started to learn, right. That they didn't really understand that punishment was part of their pathology, that they really thought that they had somehow operationalized this sort of warehousing of people. And I was able to really get into this theory work with folks that really worked, like they worked in high level roles. And it was really interesting to sort of unpack the ways that they tell the stories that tell themselves to be able to do the work. It largely informed the way I approach this work. Now I consider myself not only a community organizer, but an institutional organizer that I've learned if you can argue down the director of corrections, literally with a belly chain and handcuffs on and talk them through like reorganizing the way that they manage their power and and negotiate outcomes that benefit folk inside the prison, really coming outside and working with city council or like prosecutors or, you know, the mayor, the governor, those folks, it's not, you you don't stand to lose as much as you did inside. So I started to recognize like, look, I can actually challenge really powerful systems, not just me as an individual, but building people power um, on the ground. And it really, that work inside the prison largely informed how I approach this political organizing I do now today. And I live in South Phoenix. I organize in South Phoenix. And if you, if you know about South Phoenix, it is, um, there was a spatial map done in 2012 by a PhD student. Um, and I wish I could cite this person's name, but I I can't, but And when I came home from prison and I tried to go live in the community that I I used to live in in South Phoenix, where I was incarcerated from and tried to return back home to, I, I realized that um, having like looked at that spatial map and found out that Arizona, South Phoenix particularly, was situated as one of the um, most, like the most concentrations of million dollar blocks in the U.S., it suddenly came clear to me, like, holy crap, I was always going to prison. Like, I, I was raised in this community. This community is designed in this way. The ways in which uh, power moves for that community, it's a redlined uh, part of town where predominantly black and brown people live. I was always going to prison. And so I guess when I started to make those connections, after I came home from prison, I started to realize, wait, now I know how to move power. I know how to move power in a different way than I ever did coming into the prison. I've actually learned how to negotiate outcomes in a way that is principled and is actually holding true to these values. And I'm an abolitionist and I need to do this work now here on the ground. And that's really... um, yeah, that's effectively sort of how the rest of this organizing takes flight. And so I'm here on the ground. I'm trying to look for folks. I'm black, I'm directly impacted. And I'm trying to look for an organization that's like an abolitionist organization where I can go and like bring these theories of change. And I looked around and I didn't find any of that 
in Phoenix. In fact, what I did find was a largely brown-led movement um, that was really focused on police accountability, um, which was great, but through like a migrant rights lens. So I didn't see myself in the organizing. So I had all these tools, right? Learning how to move power, learning how to negotiate outcomes, learning how to be principled as an abolitionist and know where to put it. And so eventually I just figured I was going to have to do this work myself and started to build base. I worked with um, a project that's a national project called Mass Liberation Project. And they were effectively like showing up all over the country doing prosecutor accountability work. And they were, you know, coming into key races in Arizona, um, being the third largest prosecuting agency in the nation at Maricopa County was something that was on their radar. And um, so they showed up and I just started taking their political education program. I became a fellow with their fellowship program. And then suddenly, I was like, wait a minute, police kill us in the streets with guns. But we don't often talk about how prosecutors kill us in court with, with long sentences and death penalties, right? Like, And so why aren't we doing this work? I remember what it was like being prosecuted. And then suddenly, my vision for an organization that is Black liberation focused, directly impacted led, situated in South Phoenix, home of the million dollar block, began. Righteous Convictions with Jason Flom is super excited and honored to have the support of a great organization like Galaxy Gives. Galaxy Gives leads the philanthropic efforts of the Novogratz family. They invest in organizations, campaigns, and leaders who are directly impacted by and working to dismantle the current punitive justice system. Galaxy Gives also builds power for the communities most harmed by mass incarceration and forges transformative solutions for responding to that harm. They envision a society where the structural barriers created by racism, poverty, and inequality are no more, where instead all people have the dignity, freedom, and rights needed to thrive. The million dollar blocks. I can't believe I've never heard of that before. I'm just processing that, right? So million dollar blocks are blocks, literally city blocks, right? Where we're spending a million dollars a year to keep people locked up. Did I get that right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What an incredible, incredible concept. You know, it only recently came to light. It's like the New York City Comptroller issued a report saying that it's costing... Uh, New Yorkers $565,000 a year to keep one person incarcerated at Rikers Island. And isn't that ironic that the million dollar blocks have got to be almost exclusively concentrated in the poorest areas, right? What a juxtaposition that is. And so when people say the system is broken, like, I just really wish that we could just fix it. Like, I, this is why abolition is so important, right? The system is not broken. It's designed to do exactly what it's doing. So when you're talking about these poor um, communities, right, having million dollar blocks, this is just, this is just the design. So what is the significance? I mean, it's an incredible phrase, a million dollar block, but what, now that you've identified this thing and you've, you've coined this incredible phrase what do we do with million dollar blocks where does it go from a phrase to how do you utilize that well you know i think um we don't often recognize that displacement is at the heart of this problem so i mentioned earlier on when we first started talking that i was incarcerated out of south phoenix but i couldn't return to it um and that's because once you are incarcerated 
you have this felony on your record and you can't pass background checks and there's all of these exclusionary laws and rules that prevent you from being able to rent in communities. And, you know, just recognizing that, again, system isn't broken. It was designed this way. Million dollar blocks are actually designed to clear the path for gentrification. And so just really looking more deeply at like these systems, again, were designed with white supremacy in mind, like right to be able to hold on to white privilege and wealth. They were designed um, really ultimately to, to um, Ruthie Wilson Gilmore talks about this um, in the Golden Gulag, um, really predispose uh, black and brown people to early death. Um, and you see it, like, right, in health statistics, you can actually look at how displacement actually is d- directly tied to early death. But people don't often recognize that prison is an actual uh, feeder of displacement. And so when you think about, right, like million-dollar blocks and how it- it's taking people off of the street and putting them into prison systems, removing them from their communities, and they can't return back to them, it effectively clears the path for gentrification. It's displacing people. So I, ac- I actually worked on a project called Rename, Remain, and Reclaim South Phoenix. And it's because those of us who've been displaced, right, have, um, and you can actually see this, I, you know, playing out here in, in South Phoenix, where, you know, um, a light rail is being built, and now suddenly all of these, like, hipster burritos are $50 each, and you can't sit down and do a coffee shop and not, you know, have a secret handshake and, like, have to spend, you know, a ton of money to get some kind of like fancy drink. And it's not South Phoenix. When I was younger, you drove through it with my, my friends and they would lock their doors. They didn't want to like be in South Phoenix. It was like where drive by shootings happen and such. Right. After you sweep everybody out, you stick them in a cage, you then clear the path, right. For what is now development um, that is designed specifically to bring in white folk and to displace black folks. And so it, it, it's a le- much deeper conversation. It's a longer story. I'm down to talk to you anytime you want to about all of these systems, because I think ultimately, like you have folks who are directly impacted by these systems. We're the ones who are closest to the problem. And so we oftentimes really have the solutions, but not, not a lot of people are asking. So I mean, I'm actually really grateful to you for, for reaching out and wanting to talk about these details, because your platform, right, where you're sharing it with, with a broader reach, folks can become educated about these things. It's those of us who are stuck in cages that don't make our way into the, to folks' rooms to talk to them about these important details. So yeah, I'm down to talk about it in greater detail. But the bottom line is, um, million-dollar blocks are designed to wipe people out, displace them, and clear the path for development. And then the million-dollar block actually can become a million-dollar block, right? And the only people that are harmed are the people who are most vulnerable, which is how the system works, right? And it's exactly, I mean, it's almost a perfect microcosm of the way it's designed and everything that you and I and so many others are, are fighting against, but it's an incredibly powerful way to look at it. And I think we need to amplify that concept. When you think of abolition, a lot of times people think of us as like, oh, you're dreamers, you just you 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 want this thing to like, you know, to the to erase prisons, erase police and have no accountability and it'd be a free for all and wild. But I don't actually think people fully understand that when the system isn't broken, it was designed this way, there is no reform to it. Like you can't reform something that is this off like um, purpose for like, you know, the well-being of people. It claims to be a thing, but it doesn't actually do that thing. And so I always take people back in their mind to like, when you think of enslaved individuals, right, back, way back when, and they had no independent recollection of what it was like to live free, they didn't still meet in alleyways and churches and behind buildings and whisper about how do you make 
slavery better? How do you make this system that's designed and is, is totally legal, much like our prison and police? Like, how do you make a system that was totally designed to do this thing better? How do we improve slavery? They didn't. They didn't have a world in mind either because there was nothing for them to look toward for themselves. And they are generationally been in, in, embedded in the system that has been gratuitous violence and, um, throughout their whole lives. And they were still able to dream of abolition. So when people go, oh, what do you want to do instead? What do you do with the most violent? What do you do with the, what do you do with the centering that question is superficial and it's really not the point. We can absolutely develop those systems, but what we have to recognize is that this perfectly legal system of policing and prison is designed to do exactly what it's doing, and there is no reform out there that is going to make it better. It freaking works. <laughs> does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. Um, you know, it does beg the question, though, and you you raised it yourself, so I'm going to unabashedly raise it again, even though you're tired of hearing it, and you've already kind of given your answer, right? But there is definitely a strong, you know, sort of counter, you know, force there, whatever, of people who are progressive or consider themselves to be progressive, and are progressive, let's face it, who say, well, but wait a minute, so a, pick a name, Dylan Roof, Right goes in and shoots up a church. A whole bunch of people died. In a world where we don't have any prisons or police, what do we do with somebody like that? Now, I under- and by the way, I understand we want to build towards a society where people like him don't need to exist because, you know, there's services and, and there's social programs designed to help head off the type of mental illness and other conditions that drive people like him to do things like that. Of course, we'd also like to have a society where there aren't aren't more guns than people. But in the meantime, that's not where we are. So what do you do if if you have no police and prisons with a guy like him? Mm. Well, first, I want to just say I am not convinced that there's a mental health issue there. So I certainly don't want to excuse his behavior and any ideas of accountability because of a mental health condition for a person who is, you know, just as egregiously violent as Dylan Roof. But I do want to say that communities have been solving and resolving, you know, responses to harm for centuries, right? So I would just, I would say this, right? For me to create a recipe for how do we deal with the one individual case, right, of Dylan Roof, and I answer that question for you today, it's still going to lead more to more questions because that's not the same. Um, can, you know, Every situation is complex. And I think that's where our first and foremost problem in thinking begins is that there would be a, a, like, a canned solution for a person like Dylan Roof. What we would have to ask if we're talking about how to res- respond to the harm that Dylan Roof caused, we have to first look at the people most directly impacted. So that's the families, right, who were harmed by this. Right. And we also have to look at the this person who is the harmer. Harm is something, you know, and I just want to say, too, as a really important principle, there is a difference between crime and harm. Crime is something that is defined by the state, designed by people with power and oftentimes to protect that power. Harm is very different. So if you want to talk about the crime Dylan Roof com- committed and like how we respond to crime and we put him in a cage, it doesn't address the actual harm. It doesn't actually address what happened to the family doesn't address what actually maybe led him to this position. I'm, people don't usually enter into harm by having caused it. There's a cycle of harm that led to Dylan Roof becoming who he was anyway. We don't address any of that. 
the systems that cause it, like the systems themselves, like white supremacy, right, and whatever else he was able to subscribe to to brew this hate into his heart. And it doesn't address preventing it again in the future. So what I'm talking about when I talk about crime and resolving it by putting somebody in a cage like Dylan Roof, none of those things, none of those things have been addressed. And, and so it, I can just tell you now that the system that we have now does none of what it claims to do. But what I do want to say is that as an abolitionist, which is a very sophisticated type of thought, it isn't superficial. In fact, superficial is looking at it by, by you know, pulling a guy off the street and sticking him in a cage and calling it a day. And again, not addressing the family, not addressing himself and his issues, not addressing the systems that caused it or how to prevent it. Um, that's superficial. Now, if you thought, think about abolition, you need to think about every layer right? Like all of those things. And so what we'd have to do to decide what we do with Dylan Roof as a community, right? Is we'd have to then talk about who was harmed and how are they restored? And you can't do that for them. You have to work with them to determine what it is that restores them. And you can't be restored, obviously, from a violent act like that completely. But there are things that family can tell you that they want. And sometimes it is punitive. In fact, when you have nothing else to dream of, your first answer will be to, for it to be punitive, but we should work to figuring out, right, what truly restores them. In fact, you see people getting executed constantly in this country, and you see the families who called for it in court, the victims, families who called for it in court. And then when the person's executed, they come back and they're like, I don't feel any better. It's because nothing was restored. And I've talked to people who are, who are deemed by the system victims, and so often the system leaves them completely empty-handed. And so when you ask me the question of what do we do with somebody in a, serious, uh, a seriously violent situation like Dylan Roof, we ask the family, we work with families, we figure out what in the world led this guy to this situation. We address some of those harms too, because that's how you get into preventing. And then you start looking at the systems that caused it, and you start addressing those as well. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. 
it's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Summon your anticipation for an all new season of our favorite Netflix series, Bridgerton. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? And meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. And I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. So let's talk about the other aspects of your work, right? Reimagining Communities. Uh, you're a re- you are, as I understand it, a Reimagining Communities Fellow with the National Council for Incarcerated and Formerly Incarcerated Women and Girls. What an important thing to talk about in this country that incarcerates women at a rate that is unprecedented in the history of civilization. Yeah, that is powerful. And that is sobering. And uh, it is uh, true. And I was in a woman's prison in 2003. I got there. It's doubled in size now in terms of not size, actually. No, definitely not size. They're just grouping more people into rooms. Um, It's doubled in population. Um, And it's really, really astounding to hear some of the stories of what led to the outcome where women are facing decades and lifetimes in in prison. And it is, again, you know, as my work as an abolitionist, oftentimes looking at how we're responding to harm and just recognizing that there is such this difference between like this notion that, you know, you put the, the bad person in a cage and then they'll stop being bad. And all of society, it's just swept away um, out of your eyesight. You don't have to worry about the domestic violence that led to it. You don't have to worry about the poverty that led to it. You don't have to worry about the racism that led to it. You don't have to worry about any of those systems. And so it just keeps repeating itself. And this other system that, you know, is judicial, just sort of like as a well-oiled machine, just chews people up and sticks them in. And so what I did with the National Council as a fellow was I really took a look at how we're destroying families and actually the genocide of it all, right? Putting women into prison during their childbearing years um, and really denying people the opportunity to have families and space them. It's a human right, right? To To decide how you want to build your family and space your children. And um, and the carceral system interrupting that is really super violent, and it's actually an untold story. Most folks don't even think about that, about how how um, you're not able to maintain relationships, and how actually Department of Child Services and the like all across the nation are are taking the babies away from incarcerated people all over all over the the, the country at a rate that's astounding, and and finding that like these families are broken apart, and and not really recognizing that at the end of the day, when a disproportionate amount of Black people end up in in prisons and jails, that 
that is tantamount to genocide. That was my work there. Yeah, that's another very. Um, you just have you just have an interesting way of crystallizing these issues that um, I think is really important because it, these messages that there has to be a way to cut through, and some of these little pressure points that you've identified are so so powerful. So Lola, I'm trying to stay optimistic and hopeful while at the same time watching, you know, Biden, who I'm very grateful to because his winning the election probably saved the entire planet from imminent destruction. But at the same time, he is who he is and he's just put 32 billion more dollars in the budget for police and prisons. And I'm sitting here going, what? I mean, give me a reason to be optimistic, will you? <laughs> well, certainly we can't um, leave it to systems of power, the systems, again, that are designed to do exactly what they're doing. We can't leave it to them to, um, to keep us safe. Like, right, we know police are not what they say that they are and what, you know, they spend millions and millions and millions of dollars a year. In fact, probably billions of dollars a year across the nation doing public campaigns just to try to generate trust. It's like the most ridiculous thing. And then you think about how much, you know, Hollywood actually does that work for them too. When you think of crime and punishment television, law and order, where they sweep up the streets in 47 minutes. Right. And like, um, everything is, is like resolved at the end and the bad guys in the prison and the cop got to beat them up because they knew deep in their gut that it was the right thing to do, even though it was extra legal. And we've normalized that to the extent that like we watch that on, and we consume it at this level, right? So, so really, like, you know, the the systems like this, like Biden, even, you know, you know, walking out and saying how much money he's going to spend on police and reinforcing that very system that we know is killing us, is just not. You can't rely on that to to be able to um, to fix it. So I, I always say, like, local organizing, and we follow the work of Adrian Marie Brown, who is the author of a book called Emergent Strategy. And one of the things she talks about is that change must be fractal, right? Like, so fractal meaning that, it, you know, whatever's on the small scale should also be able to reflect on the larger scale. But I, I often tell our communities when we have community meetings, like, you can't expect the government, the larger systems of power to to do these things that you're, you're hoping for, like, right, to save the community, to address harm and not just like, right, throw people in cages. You can't expect them to do that if you cannot do that on a smaller scale here in our communities. So I always tell people, like, even though it seems like it's an insurmountable goal, like, how do I get to Biden and tell him don't spend on police, right? It isn't, it isn't. What in fact it is, is like addressing the stuff in your living room, right? Talking to your neighbor, explaining these systems that seem largely like, you know, they're, they're mystified. You can't really understand what's really behind them. Like why we just unpacked how prisons feed development and gentrification, right? And it's all dollars, right? We unpacked that here on this, on this show, but like sitting at your table at dinner with your spouse or your neighbor or, you know, kids and especially kids, right? The, if we can start to develop these notions that this change is necessary on that small scale, it will begin to grow to the larger scale. So I always say that local organizing is the most important thing 
And it gives way, right, to those larger pushes of systems that are much greater than us. And it doesn't feel then, right, like this insurmountable goal. In fact, you build people power. I was just one organizer doing prosecutor accountability work in Phoenix for a long time. And now we have a 10,000 strong um, base that we mobilize to do all types of political organizing here in Maricopa County. And that was just in two years because we worked doing these little small conversations. We used to meet in my living room. And now it's just this whole other type of movement now. And and again, it's just a movement that pulled out the largest, the strongest seat in, polit- in, in legal uh, law enforcement in Arizona. And it's the third largest prosecuting agency in the nation, in the fourth largest county in the nation, in the fifth highest incarcerator in the nation. We, Black people, our organization, uninstalled an oligarch by just doing that sitting in living rooms and talking about and educating people. So it can be done. So if you're hopeless, like, right, like build power on a local level and get your army built. I don't like army. That's a horrible word, right? That's a militarized force again by the system. Like build, build your, your, your community and strengthen it. And that then you get taken more seriously, right, by those systems of power. So don't give up. Do that local work. Amen and more power to you. And now, um, Lola, we turn to my favorite part of the show, which is our final two segments. And the first one's really fun. So the first one is called the magic wand question. The magic wand question works like this. I think I can kind of anticipate what you're going to say, but I, I, you surprised me a lot of times today already. So the magic wand question works like this. Basically it presupposes that I have a magic wand and I could grant you one wish. What would it be? Mm, Goodness. Um, it's either abolish police, or if it's not too much to ask, I would just say meet everybody's needs. We wouldn't need them if that was the case anyway. We wouldn't believe we needed them to begin with. That's a great answer. I'm not surprised. You didn't disappoint. And then the final segment of our show is called Words of Wisdom. And this part works like this. First of all, I thank you again just for being who you are. I mean, courage, brains, and energy. I don't know. <laughs> That's a pretty powerful combination. And you've got them all in in quantities that are unfathomable. So it's fantastic to, to talk to you and to learn from you. So I appreciate that. And then Words of Wisdom is where I turn my microphone off leave my headphones on, kick back in my chair and just listen to any parting words of wisdom you want to share with me and our audience. Wow. Okay. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to share our 10 principles. And if you can vibe with those, I will tell you at the end, you might be surprised. Our very first one is love and rigor. It takes all of us to dismantle a system and we won't always agree on everything, but because of love for the community and each other, we work through challenges instead of walking away. That's principle one. Principle two is we center black liberation. So despite how black, brown, poor, indigenous people get caught up in the system is actually designed to target and oppress black people. So by liberating black people, we all get free. Um, Number three is the system isn't broken. It was designed this way. The system is designed to exploit and imprison black and brown and poor people. And the system as we know it cannot be fixed or reformed. We have to work to dismantle it. Number four is it's all of us or none of us. Liberation for one person at the expense of another is not liberation at all. We got to seek liberation for all people regardless of our differences. We can't discriminate. 
The fifth is justice reinvestment. The money that currently goes into caging people should be spent strengthening our communities. Number six is there's a difference between crime and harm. Crime is defined by people with power, often to preserve that power. And there's no connection to actually um, what harms us and harms the community or restoration from those harms. Number seven is there's we should always put people over property. Human life is always more important than profit and property. Number eight, we focus on healing and personal transformation. We seek to dismantle the current system of punishment and retribution and focus on personal health and healing. Number nine, you got to center the leadership of directly impacted people because the people closest to the problem are always closest to the solution. And last but certainly not least, putting people in cages is never the answer. Full stop. If you can rock with that, then you actually are an abolitionist. So that's an invitation. Thank you for listening to Righteous Convictions with Jason Flom. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Annie Chelsea, Jeff Clyburn, Lila Robinson, and Kevin Wardis. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Lava for Good. You can also follow me on both TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Righteous Convictions with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.